Please open your Bibles to Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 1 through 3. And let's begin by reading this passage together. Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Paul writes this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Contrary to what many people may think, Christians are not unconcerned with truth. I know that seems to be the common perception of Christians in today's society. Uh, People think that because we believe in things we can't see, or because we subject all truth claims to the authority of God's inspired word, that we're not really interested in truth, or at the very least that we aren't entirely reasonable. Basically, people assume that because some of the things we believe cannot be measured through repeatable, observable phenomena, that we're not approaching these subjects from an unbiased position. Instead, there are things that we want to be true, things that we hope are true. And because we want them to be true, we're skewing the data in their favor. Essentially, they would say we're guilty of a kind of confirmation bias. We pay attention to whatever data reaffirms our beliefs while ignoring whatever does not. And to some degree, guilty as charged, I suppose. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll be the first to admit that I want the gospel to be true. It's not exactly like I'm believing this against my will. But at the same time, I think you could say the same thing of most unbelievers as well. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that they're just as invested in rejecting the gospel as you or I are in believing it. Point being, we're all biased. We all have things that we want to believe, and so we're going to be tempted to skew the data in our favor. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're unconcerned with truth either. The fact of the matter is, as much as you and I may want the gospel to be true, we still recognize that there's no real benefit in just pretending that it's true. And so as biased as we may be, we're actually very concerned about the notion of truth. If you stop to think about it, for instance, this is why our doubts scare us. It's where things like confirmation bias comes from. We try to find data that reaffirms our belief Because we understand that as much as we may want to believe something, there's no use in believing it if it's not actually true. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we know what is true? At least part of the reason why the Christian believes the gospel and the unbeliever does not is because we each have a different set of answers to that question. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that this is the only reason. Again, the Bible tells us that the major reason why 
one of us believes and the other doesn't, is it's rooted in our desires. Basically, people don't want to believe because, uh, or they don't believe because they don't want to believe. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Rather, what I'm saying is that once you start to explore the logic that unbelievers use to justify their unbelief, what you soon discover is that we're playing by two entirely different sets of rules. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 when he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The world has its own notions of what it constitutes as evidence. For the Jews in Paul's day, that evidence came in the form of miracles. Truth was demonstrated through the visible manifestation of supernatural power. For the Greeks, it came in the form of philosophical wisdom. Whether or not it appealed to their sense of beauty and virtue, their sense of logic, of, of right and wrong. In our day and age, it's really no different. In fact, if you stop to think about it, the world even continues to demand the exact same kinds of proof. Just like the Jews sought evidential proof through signs and miracles, so also do many unbelievers refuse to believe in the gospel without some readily apparent demonstrable proof. They want something they can lay their hands on, something that they can repeatedly put to the test. Still others demand the gospel answer their own set of religious and philosophical questions. You know, if, if God is both omnipotent and good, then why is there so much evil in the world? If God has it within His power to save all people, well, then why doesn't He? And why does He punish the wicked in hell for eternity, even those who've never heard the gospel? Is that really just? Is that really fair? They don't think so. They don't see how the gospel answers these questions to their satisfaction, and so they reject it. Now, it's not as if to say the scriptures don't address these types of issues. As Paul goes on to say, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. In other words, it's not as if God asks us to believe without evidence, or that he asks us to believe things that are entirely illogical. But, as Paul explains, the problem is that these types of, uh, with these other types of proof, is that they put man in a position of authority and they put God on the witness stand. They expect God to measure up to man's understanding of, of how things ought to be, and that's not how this works. In the words of Isaiah 29, He is the potter and we are the clay. He does not have to answer to us. We must answer to Him. And so God provides proof and He gives explanation, but He does so on His terms and He does so in a way that ultimately humbles mankind and forces man to acknowledge that He is the sovereign God. A number of months ago, I was working through a book on different approaches to psychology. It was written from a Christian perspective, meaning the contributors to the book would all call themselves Christians. And they were all wrestling with the degree to which Christians should accept secular, secular methodologies in counseling. One author was advocating for what's called a levels of explanation approach. The levels of explanation approach to psychology basically says that the issues psychology is trying to address and the issues Christianity is trying to address are in two completely different spheres. They're not talking about the same thing, so we should just see these as different subjects 
and go ahead and adopt secular methodologies in counseling. Now, the upshot of this was that this author was very open to the use of the scientific method in counseling because that's more or less standard operating procedure in modern counseling. Hypotheses are proposed, they're tested, and then they're either proven true or false based on the subsequent data. All in all, the idea is that you take the same approach to the study of the mind as you would to, say, physics or chemistry. And in fact, this is why modern psychology tends to be treated as a science, because it subscribes to the basic methodologies, the same basic methodologies as the sciences. As another author critiqued this perspective, he offered a very interesting analysis of the problems inherent in this type of approach. His main point of contention was that this methodology adopts a system of verification which, while incredibly useful in the realm of math and physics, is wholly unsuitable for the soul. Speaking of the scientific advancements which occurred during the Enlightenment, he writes this. He says, The successes of astronomy in measuring observables, their movements and relationships to one another, the appeal to efficient and physical causes for explanation, were so successful that moderns in the 17th and 18th centuries wanted to make this the chief language of all physical knowledge, if not all knowledge. Thus, science adopted a method of measuring physical bodies and their movement called quantification, which involved observation of bodies in motion and their causal relationships to other bodies. This was clearly successful in some fields of investigation and was soon adopted as the universal way to do science for all objects and fields of study. He continues, however, major problems resulted from this commitment for both science and psychology. The particular, the particular difficulties encountered have to do with the kind of knowledge language that can be used to explain one, spiritual reality and non-physical phenomena, and two, ethics. He says, under the modernist view of science, it's not at all clear what knowledge language can be used to intelligibly talk about objects that have neither extension nor movement that can be measured. Things that include, arguably, God, angels, souls or minds, numbers, ideas, propositions, dreams, consciousness, mental images, personal agency, first-person identity, and experiences of feelings and thoughts. Now, I don't know if you're following everything that he's saying there, but essentially he's saying that the problem with taking the scientific method in automatically applying it to every field of study is that scientific, the scientific method is useful for measuring physical objects. It's based on the concept of observation and in order to observe something you have to be able to measure it. The problem though is that some things by definition do not exist in time and space. That doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't real, it just means that they, they're not going to show up on these units of measurement, right? Take love for instance. Would you say that love is a real thing? Well, how about I give you a ruler and you show me? You can't do it, right? That's because love, although real, is not a physical substance. You can't prove it with scientific measurement. And that was this author's point of contention with this levels of explanation approach. He's saying you're taking a methodology that's incredibly useful for discovering truth in one sphere of reality, and then you're automatically applying it to another sphere for which it may be wholly unsuited. He then turned to what he called the classical realist approach that says, well, if we're going to study an object, we first need to be acquainted with what the object is 
And then after we know what it's made of, so to speak, we can discern the appropriate unit of measurement for that field of study. If you're studying physics, of course, you're probably going to use tape measures and scales because you're dealing with tangible objects and their movement through physical space. If you're studying history, though, that probably won't work. In that field of study, eyewitness accounts and other types of historical records will probably serve as your basis for discerning truth and error. Well, this raises the question, so what about God? What about spiritual truth? After all, God is not material. He is spirit. As Solomon notes at the dedication of the temple, Behold, the heavens, uh, the heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. God is completely without spatial dimension. Neither is there any system of wisdom or logic that he must adhere to, since by definition he is base reality. Everything comes from him, and so he alone determines what is good or right or true. He is not subject to any external definition of right and wrong that we can apply in order to discover him. So how do we find him? Once again, Paul discloses the answer in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, and it's actually entirely logical once you consider the nature of God. Again, to those who are the call, there is a kind of wisdom in the gospel once you have eyes to see it. So what is it? What's the means that God has established for knowing Him? Paul gives the answer, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13. After stating that we as Christians have received a kind of knowledge that the world is unable to comprehend, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul says God is spirit. He is infinite. He is entirely unknowable apart from his own spirit. And so if we're going to come to know God, then we must receive that knowledge from the only source that is capable of knowing God as he is. And that's God himself. The Spirit of God must disclose the knowledge of God because the only one who can truly know or quote-unquote discover God is God Himself. In other words, no one can force their way into that relationship. No one can find Him against His will. He is the only means of adequately disclosing who He is. So if you want to learn about God, then there's only one way truly to do it. It's through divine disclosure. You do not find God. God finds you and reveals himself to you. This is the aspect of divine knowledge that thoroughly humbles man and places God back on the throne. It reminds us that we are not in the driver's seat in this relationship. If we're going to know God, the only way it's going to happen is if in his mercy... 
He discloses himself to us. We're currently in our third week on avoiding gospel downgrade from Philippians 3, 1 through 3. The title for this series comes from an event in church history known as the downgrade controversy. A downgrade, of course, refers to the downward slope of a hill. And in the downgrade controversy, the English preacher Charles Spurgeon was trying to warn the Baptist union he belonged to that many of its pastors were beginning to make several key theological compromises and that if something wasn't done about it soon, then the momentum of those compromises would be unstoppable. Just like a boulder rolling downhill, the further it rolls down the hill, the faster it goes and the faster it goes, it's, the harder it is to stop. That was Spurgeon's concern in the downgrade controversy. He was worried that one compromise would lead to another, which would lead to another, and so on, until eventually there would be nothing left of the gospel worth proclaiming. I've said that every generation faces the threat of downgrade, and we're no different. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do you avoid it? How do you stop it before it begins? Because again, this is the real danger with downgrade. It's incredibly subtle at the outset. It begins with a series of seemingly inconsequential compromises. But then by the time it gains steam and the error becomes apparent, it's too late. It's gathered too much momentum. And it's almost impossible to stop. So the question is really, how do you prevent downgrade more than how do you stop it? That's a question that we're exploring from Philippians 3, 1 through 3. And what we've seen so far in our study of this passage is that if we're going to prevent gospel downgrade, then we must be able to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate sources of spiritual authority. The Philippians, you will recall, are entertaining their own form of theological compromise. And as I've explained over the past couple of weeks, that compromise is being introduced by what appear, at least to the Philippians, to be legitimate spiritual authorities. Essentially, you have this group of overzealous Jews who have probably come into Philippi to stir up trouble for the Philippians with the Roman authorities. And in the process, they're challenging Paul's teaching about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, it doesn't seem as if the Philippians are considering an outright rejection of Christ at this point. But it does seem that either out of genuine sincerity or perhaps even just as a way of escaping persecution, at least some in the church are considering the adoption of circumcision. I pointed this out before. You had this early teaching in the church which said that if you wanted to be in Christ, then you needed to be in Israel. And that occurred through the act of circumcision. You see this occur in Galatians, for instance. There you have these teachers who are saying, if you're going to be saved, then you must be circumcised because salvation is a promise made with Israel. That's probably what's happening here in Philippi as well. These Jews are stirring up trouble for the Philippian believers by pointing out how they aren't Jewish to the Roman authorities and how they worship a different king than Caesar. And while the Philippians aren't about to abandon their faith in Jesus per se, they're starting to wonder if maybe there's a problem with the fact that they aren't circumcised. Maybe there's a problem with the fact that they are outside of Israel. And this is happening because regardless of whether or not these Jews like the Philippians, the Philippians still view them as a kind of legitimate spiritual authority. 
I said last week that I think we can see the reason why in verses 2 to 3 where Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, for we are the circumcision. Through Paul's teaching, these Philippians have come to believe that the people of Israel have been entrusted with the oracles of God. They believe that salvation is from the Jews. The problem is that up until this point, they've only been influenced by one branch of Israel, and that was believing Israel. Again, there weren't enough Jews in, in Philippi to form a synagogue. And so when Paul and his companions come into town and say, Our Messiah has come and His name is Jesus, and all you must do to be saved is repent and believe in His name, they don't necessarily understand that this is a controversial teaching. These other Jews are now making their disagreement known, and within the context of this suffering, the Philippians are starting to wonder if maybe they have a point. Again, they're not about to turn away from Jesus, but they're wondering, perhaps sincerely, or perhaps just simply as a way of trying to find some middle ground with their opponents. They're wondering if maybe there is something to this whole circumcision thing. As I said last week, this is so often how gospel downgrade begins. It doesn't start from the bottom. It starts from the top with the teachers. It starts with the ones who have both the visibility and the credibility to propagate error. And then it works its way down. So if we're going to prevent gospel downgrade, then we must not only be on guard, we must watch for it, but we must watch most particularly for the teachers. So then, that being the case, what do you look out for? What are the warning signs, maybe, which would indicate a spirit of compromise in a teacher? I mean, if the whole point is that this error enters into the church because the teacher who's inter who, who uh, introduces it has assumed a, a form of legitimacy and, and appears credible, then what can you do to distinguish between the teacher who is actually credible and the one who is not. I think of it sort of like counterfeit money. The counterfeit looks very much like the genuine article. That's how the counterfeiter manages to get it into circulation. It's hard to distinguish from the real thing. It's the same way with error. The way error manages to work its way into circulation is because it's being palmed off by a teacher who looks like the real thing. So how do you tell the difference? Well, that's what Paul addresses in verse 3 of this morning's passage. He tells the Philippians how to distinguish between genuine spiritual authority, between the true stewards of the oracles of God, in this instance the true circumcision, and the false. And incidentally, the route he takes is not unlike how a bank trains a teller to distinguish the difference between real money and counterfeit. I don't know if you've heard this before, but banks don't train their tellers to detect counterfeit money uh, by teaching them all the marks of a forgery. Instead, they have them become acquainted with the genuine article. That's because governments intentionally design their money to make it very difficult to copy. There are certain marks in the real thing that are very hard to duplicate. A counterfeiter may be able to copy one or two of these markers, but it's very hard to copy all of them at the same time without being detected. And so they make the teller very familiar with the real thing so that when they're handed the fake, it just feels off. 
They can't put their finger on it at first, but they know something's wrong. That's Paul's approach as well. He doesn't point to the marks of a false teacher. Instead, he points to the marks of a reliable one. That way, as the Philippians handle the counterfeit, they'll be able to realize something's off here. This isn't right. And just like with money, while a false teacher may be able to copy one or even two of these characteristics, it's going to be very difficult for them to copy all three. In fact, if they manage to copy all three, then you could almost say it doesn't entirely matter because by that point, they're actually teaching truth, whatever their intent may be. So that's what we're going to explore here in Philippians 3, verse 3. In this verse, Paul provides three proofs of genuine spiritual authority. Once again, that's three proofs of genuine spiritual authority. And you can almost think of these proofs as potential warning signs for a teacher who's susceptible to downgrade. You know, just like if you're driving down the interstate and you see one of these steep grade ahead signs that, that warn you about the downslope, so also if you start to see one of these proofs missing in the life and teaching of a spiritual leader, then it's probably a pretty good warning sign, either that you're dealing with an outright counterfeit, or at best you're dealing with a sincere brother who, well-meaning though he may be, is still susceptible to downgrade. Once again, Paul provides us with three proofs of genuine spiritual authority. And just so you know, because of the importance of this issue in the life of a church, and I do think this is incredibly important to nail down in the life of a church, because of that, we're going to spend a week apiece on each of these proofs. And the first proof is this. Proof number one, spirit-fueled worship. Spirit-fueled worship. The true steward of God's revelation worships by the Spirit of God. And so if you encounter a man who does not worship by the Spirit, that's a warning sign that you're dealing with a man with the capacity to promote error. And I know I've already said this before, but I think it bears repeating. This is not to say that such a man may necessarily mean to promote error. It can be strictly unintentional, all the same regardless of his intent. If he does not worship in the Spirit, then he is still prone to promote error. Once again, you see this mark come out in verse 3. Paul says, verse 2, watch out for the dogs, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, verse 3, for we are the circumcision before providing three marks that distinguish true Israel, believing Israel, the portion of Israel that has been entrusted with the oracles of God the first of which is worship by the Spirit of God. For we are the circumcision, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God. In the past several weeks, I've spoken repeatedly, mostly during Sunday school, about the importance of understanding the larger development of the Bible's storyline, and particularly as is expressed through the Old Testament covenants, in order to really understand what guys like Paul are trying to communicate in the New Testament. And this statement right here about worshiping in the Spirit is just another example of what I mean when I say that. Again, understand Paul is saying that the real circumcision, meaning the portion of Israel that has been entrusted with the oracles of God and has therefore been tasked with communicating God's revelation to the nations, he says that that portion of Israel worships by the Spirit. Just so you understand, Paul's not pulling that idea out of nowhere. 
This is a statement that's steeped in Old Testament theology. Again, we've talked about this quite frequently recently, so I, 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 I won't get into to the detail about all of that again right now. But if you recall what the Old Testament tells us very early on, in fact, what it tells us as early as the first five books that were delivered to Israel by Moses is that while Israel has been set apart to reveal the oracles of God to the world, the problem is that sin has entered into the race through Adam. And it affects Israel just the same as it does the rest of the nations. That's Paul's point in Ephesians 2 when he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We learn from the context that the you in those verses refers to the Gentiles. It refers to the people who Paul says less than a chapter later were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. After saying that the Gentiles at that time served Satan in their trespasses and sin. Paul continues, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among whom we all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This last statement affirms what Moses wrote so many years before. Mankind is by nature children of wrath on account of Adam's sin. They are all dead in their trespasses and sins and bound to follow the prince of the power of the air. And Israel's no different. This is a, this is a disease that affects all mankind. And so Israel may have been set apart to serve God through the sign of circumcision, and they may have received His law at Sinai on tablets of stone. The problem, though, is that internally they were just as corrupt as the rest of mankind. And so they were doomed to repeat the same mistakes as mankind. They were going to rebel against God. They were going to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, just like the rest of mankind. And so right before the end of his ministry, Moses tells the people, there's more work that needs to be done in you that God will do in the future. He says, there's a time coming when God is going to circumcise your hearts so that you'll finally become on the inside what he's called you to be on the outside. And that's a people set apart to serve Him in sincerity and truth. As the Old Testament develops, we learn that this internal circumcision will occur through the gift of the Holy Spirit. God tells Israel that He's going to establish a new covenant with the people, one that's better than the old one, because under this covenant, He's going to etch His law not on tablets of stone, but on the very hearts of His people. They will both know His will, and have the desire to do it. That is the theological background at play when Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He's telling the Philippians, yes, it is true that Israel has received this incredibly unique commission from God, but that said, that doesn't mean that all Israel necessarily lives up to this calling. God has told us in His Word that even the Jewish people are dead in their sins and unable to fully embrace the truth of God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're trying to figure out which one of us truly represents the revelation of God, then the first question you need to ask is which one of us worships by the Spirit of God? Because apart from the work of the Spirit of God, even the descendant of Abraham will resist his will. 
that's pretty much the testimony of the entire Old Testament. And of course the implication is that the Philippians already know the answer to this question. They've seen the Spirit's affirmation of Paul's ministry. And so Paul and his companions, companions, they're the ones standing in the line of these Old Testament promises. They are the true circumcision. They're the portion of Israel who's been circumcised not only in the flesh of their foreskin, but in their very hearts. So they should listen to Paul and his companions on this subject of circumcision and not these unclean dogs. It's like I said in our introduction this morning. How does one discern spiritual truth? You can't measure it. You can't discover it through experimentation. So how is spiritual truth discerned? And the answer is through the Spirit. We learn spiritual truth through the Spirit. Both the nature of God and the human condition mandate that spiritual truth be discerned spiritually. It isn't enough for God to write His commands on tablets of stone or even in the Holy Scriptures. If a person does not possess the Spirit of God Himself, he will be unable to discern the difference between spiritual truth and error. Or at the very least, he will be unable to do so reliably. Again, that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And so for wanting to know who is an authentic spiritual authority, this is one of the questions that we must ask ourselves. Do they worship by the Spirit of God? Because without the Spirit of God, they're essentially blind to spiritual truth. They lack the proper tools to discern, to distinguish between truth and error. And so the teacher who doesn't possess the Spirit of God, it doesn't matter what their intent may be, they're going to be susceptible to error. And of course, that's a problem for the church because again, downgrade begins with the teachers. When they slip, they bring a whole bunch of people down with them. This is why I say that this is one warning sign to watch for. If a man starts to demonstrate that he does not worship by the Spirit of God, then downgrade in the church probably isn't too far behind. Because he's susceptible to error and then of course he's going to spread that error to the church. Now then, this raises the question, how do we know, right? How do we know whether or not a man possesses the Spirit of God? So we know that a man should worship by the Spirit, but what does that look like? And I think there are a number of different ways that we could answer that question. For example, uh, we could look for the next two proofs that Paul points to in this passage. Uh, that would be Christ-centered delight and cross-centered hope because the New Testament tells us, right, that the Spirit points to Christ. So a man who does not delight in Christ or who does not trust in Him for the forgiveness of his sins, he most definitely does not worship by the Spirit of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's because the Spirit testifies to Christ. So a denial of either of these next two proofs demonstrates that a man does not possess the Spirit of God. But as it relates to this passage, I think one could argue that that's a bit of circular reasoning. After all, the whole point is that these other Jews are challenging that strain of revelation. They would say the scriptures which say the Spirit testifies to Jesus are false. 
Because the apostles who wrote those scriptures are not legitimate spiritual authorities. They don't represent God. They're not true Israel. They're false teachers. And at that point, we could say, so what about the miracles performed by the apostles? Do they not demonstrate that they speak on behalf of God when they say the Spirit testifies to Jesus? And they do, by the way. The works performed by the apostles demonstrated their authority. And this may be largely what Paul has in mind when he tells the Philippians, we worship by the Spirit of God. He may be reminding them of the fact that when he was in Philippi, they saw him exercise the demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl, right? They saw the jail open up for him. The problem is that those types of demonstrations are unique to the apostles, right? They're not repeated today. So it's not as if we can say today, well, that guy isn't a legitimate spiritual authority because he doesn't have the gift of healing or something like that. And not only that, but guess what the Pharisees said when they saw Jesus doing the exact same kind of thing during his ministry. They said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. In other words, they recognized the miracle, but they questioned its source. They basically compared Jesus to one of Pharaoh's magicians and said, yeah, we see the miracle, but it isn't, it isn't God that's doing that. It's some dark source. So again, where do we go? How do we know if a man worships by the Spirit of God? I think we probably see the answer in the way Paul phrases this. If you note here, it's not just that the man possesses the Spirit of God, but that he worships by the Spirit of God. The word here, by the way, is the Greek term latreo. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. This means literally, this word latreo means literally to serve. I don't know if you remember this, but back at the end of chapter 2, I said Paul keeps using this word that's typically used in conjunction with the priest's service in the temple. Well, this is that same term, only this time it's in the form of a verb, the term latreo. I think this probably helps you understand what Paul's driving at. When he uses this term worship, he's not just saying that the man has good feelings about God or something like that. He's saying that the man serves by the Spirit, like he is serving God much in the same way a priest would, only he's doing so by the Spirit of God. Now, what would that look like? Again, I think we can go back to the Old Testament and see the precedent that's been established there. Think about it. Why did God promise Israel the Spirit in the first place? Why did He tell them through Moses that He would one day circumcise their hearts? And it's because they did not serve God apart from the Spirit. He had set them apart as a kingdom of priests and He had given them His commandments so that they could serve Him with their obedience, but they couldn't do that apart from the work of the Spirit. And so God promised to give them the Spirit, to, to write the law on their hearts, so that they could serve Him through their obedience to His commands. You understand, it isn't miracles. It isn't miracles that serve as the primary witness to God's Spirit. It's deeds. It's the quality of one's righteousness. This is one of the reasons I get so frustrated with those who want to insist that we should expect all these miraculous signs in the church today. I'm going, have you even read the Old Testament? God didn't say, I'm going to give you the Spirit so you can work wonders. 
He said, I'm going to give you the Spirit so you can obey my commands. I'm going to give you the Spirit so that you can serve me. And don't get me wrong, I know passages like Joel 2 exist, and God says in the last day, says his people will dream dreams and see visions, but that's not really the reason God sends them the Spirit. He sends His Spirit to His people so that they can worship Him in spirit and truth, so that they can serve Him. And so if you want to know who truly represents God, one of the things you should look for is obedience. Does he obey God's commands? That's the question that discerns the Spirit's presence. Throughout this series, I've tried to sprinkle in different examples from church history that demonstrate the effects of downgrade in the church. We've talked about the downgrade controversy itself, of course. Last week we talked a, a little bit about the Puritans' descent into Unitarianism. And I think this is helpful because it demonstrates for us how very dangerous downgrade really is. And again, I think that's important because of how subtle it is at the beginning. The initial compromises that cause a church to descend into apostasy don't seem very dangerous at the outset because they're so very small. What church history does is show us that those small compromises usually pretend something much, much bigger. It lets us know that actually those small compromises can be incredibly dangerous. In fact, when you study church history, one of the things you discover is that this is one of the defining issues of the church throughout its history. So much of it can really be described as a fight over downgrade. When you see divisions, uh, for instance, occur in the church, that's typically because you had a group that saw the church sliding downhill and eventually they chose to separate rather than participate in the decline. Even much of the theology that's developed in church history is, is often defined first and then refined in the context of controversies that arose over downgrade. Take the Roman Catholic Church, for instance. One of the core teachings of the Catholic Church, at least historically, is that salvation cannot occur apart from membership in the Catholic Church. Reason being, the sacraments are the efficacious instruments of God's grace. So if you're not in union with the church that administers the sacraments, then you're effectively cut off from God's grace. So that's the teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, do you know when that teaching was refined? It occurred very early in church history, as several separatist groups emerged in response to the Catholic Church's increasing tolerance of sin in its members. We'll probably come back and discuss this more next week, but for the moment, I'd have you note that one such group was a group known as the Donatists. And the chief contention of the Donatists was that the sacraments uh, that, had to, to, that, that had been administered by an unqualified priest, sacraments that had been administered by an unqualified priest were not valid. They said those sacraments are not efficacious. The church had already developed a sacramental system by this point in response to these other separatist movements who were concerned over the purity of the church. They had already responded to these groups by saying, well, listen, if you separate from us, you're cut off from Christ. The Donatists responded by accepting the sacramental system while saying, but the sacrament doesn't count if the priest isn't qualified. 
The Catholic Church ultimately rejected this position. They argued that the worth was in the sacrament, not in the man administering the sacrament. And to some degree, you can see where they're going with that. There's actually a, a measure of salvation by grace alone and Christ alone in that argument, even if it is not salvation through faith alone. I've had people ask me from time to time, after their pastor has fallen into sin, what do we do with everything we've learned over the past 10, 15, 20 years? Does this invalidate everything? And my answer is no. No, it doesn't invalidate everything because the truth isn't made holy by the righteousness of your pastor. And so if what he said was scriptural, then it's true and efficacious, right, regardless of his personal character. And it can bring you to salvation and sanctify you regardless of where he is spiritually because your salvation and sanctification are established on the base of Christ's perfect righteousness and through the work of the Holy Spirit. In short, the gospel's power does not weigh in any way, it does not in any way rest on the qualifications of the man delivering it. So I guess in that sense, I actually would have sided with the Catholic Church in that debate if that is, I thought grace was administered by sacrament, which obviously I don't. That said, you can still understand why the Donatists would be concerned with the notion of unqualified priests, can't you? And most especially in light of what Paul is saying here about authentic spiritual authority. Again, when people ask me, what do I do about what I've learned now that my pastor has fallen into sin? I do tell them it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily mean that you've wasted 10 plus years of your Christian life if what he told you was true. But then I'll also say to them, but it's probably worth reflecting on what he did teach you during that time. Because at the very least, his fall into sin indicates that he was not walking by the Spirit. You look at the Catholic Church today and how far it's fallen away from the gospel as it's been led by men who, by their actions, very clearly indicated that they did not possess the Spirit of God. And I think you have to say that on the whole, the Donatists were right. Were they not? They were justified in being concerned. The specifics of their argument might have been flawed due to their acceptance of the sacramental system, but their concern over an unqualified clergy were right on target. Listen, if you're going to avoid that kind of downgrade, then you need men in positions of leadership who worship by the Spirit of God. And the way you'll know if they worship by the Spirit of God is by their obedience. So with that in mind, let me wrap up by giving you briefly here two characteristics to watch for to discern whether or not a man is worshiping by the Spirit. And before I get too far into this, let me just say these are just warning signs, and they're incredibly subjective. So please understand me. I'm not saying that if a man doesn't measure up to your standards in these two areas, then he's obviously going to lead the church into heresy or something like that. I'm just saying these two characteristics are going to be expressed in a man who's controlled by the Spirit. And so be observant. And if you see your pastor or even just a close Christian friend, for that matter, slipping in either of these areas, try to do what you can to encourage them to be faithful. And of course, be sure to do that with as much grace and understanding as you can muster, right? Because none of us are going to do either of these things perfectly. 
That said, the first characteristic is love. It's love. A man who worships by the Spirit loves his fellow Christians. In other words, I say that the, uh, 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 the one who worships by the Spirit obeys God. But it's worth noting that it isn't just any type of obedience that you should be looking for. After all, the Jews that are antagonizing the Philippians, they certainly hold to a form of obedience, don't they? But that doesn't mean they serve by the Spirit. The scribes and the Pharisees that we encounter in the Gospels, they too hold to a form of obedience. But they didn't worship by the Spirit. They blasphemed the Spirit. It isn't hard to adhere to a form of religion while still remaining unchanged on the inside. This is what Jesus meant when He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He was saying their performance looked good on the outside, but inside they were still as dead as the pagan and filled with all kinds of uncleanness. So if mere religious performance isn't a demonstration of the Spirit, then what is? And the answer is love. It was on these two commandments that Jesus said, All the law and the prophets rested. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. As Paul says, right, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the level of righteousness that Jesus said God was looking for when he gave Israel his commands. And so if you want to know if a man is worshiping by the Spirit, then look for that level of conduct in his life. And of course, the summation of that teaching, Jesus says, is, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is evidence that God's Spirit is at work in an individual doesn't matter what he says with his lips. It doesn't matter what his doctrine is. If those characteristics are not evident in his life, then he's not worshiping by the Spirit of God. And I think you can say that the summation of these characteristics is love. So look for love. And if you don't see it in a man's life, then watch out. That is probably a man who is not worshiping by the Spirit. And if he's not worshiping by the Spirit, then he's susceptible to error. Downgrade can come through that man's teaching. Second characteristic is biblically saturated thoughts. Biblically saturated thoughts. You know, one of the things that struck me when I first read Spurgeon's downgrade articles is that when Spurgeon himself starts talking about the signs of decline in the church, one of the items he brings up is the willingness of pastors to attend the theater it's a little funny, isn't it? Spurgeon says, As for questionable amusements, time was when a nonconformist minister who was known to attend the playhouse would soon have found himself without a church. And justly so, for no man can long possess the confidence, even of the most worldly, who is known to be a haunter of theaters. Yet at the present time, it is a matter of notoriety that preachers of no mean repute defend the playhouse and do so because they've been seen there. Is it any wonder that church members forget their vows of consecration and run with the unholy in the ways of frivolity when they hear that persons are tolerated in the pastorate who do the same? 
Now, do you hear that? He's saying their slippage in character leads others to slip in their character as well. Again, the example they set is followed by others. Now, you probably hear that, though, and think, really, though, come on, the theater? Come on, Spurgeon, don't be such a prude. And the thing is, Spurgeon knows that's what you're thinking, and he continues. We doubt not that for writing these lines we shall incur the charge of prudery and bigotry, he says. And this will but prove how low are the tone and spirit of the churches in many places. He says the fact that you think that's prudish demonstrates how much you've already been affected by the downgrade of your spiritual leaders who want to tell you that it doesn't really matter very much what kinds of entertainment you consume. He explains, when the old faith is gone and enthusiasm for the gospel is extinct, it is no wonder that people seek something else in the way of delight. Lacking bread, they feed on ashes. Rejecting the way of the Lord, they run greedily into the path of folly. The idea is not so much that Spurgeon thinks attending the theater is sin. Rather, his point is that he thinks it a sign of a man who is so bored with spiritual things that he would rather go and be amused by sin. You don't find that sort of a thing in a, in a man who's controlled by the Spirit. The man who's controlled by the Spirit makes no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. According to the combined teaching of Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16, to be filled with the Spirit is, the, is to have the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, if you want to know whether or not a man worships by the Spirit, then listen to the things he talks about. Observe the types of things he gets excited over, the things that he delights in. Because the Spirit of God delights in the things of God. And so if a man is controlled by the Spirit, then you can bet that he too will delight in the things of God. Going back to the pastor who's fallen into sin for a moment, I would venture that in most instances this is what's happened. They started the ministry with incredible passion, but then somewhere along the way, their hearts grew numb to spiritual things, and then they experienced their own form of downgrade. They started strong, they started with a sincere faith, but one compromise led to another, which led to another. And after a while, they were still saying the right things, but their heart wasn't in it anymore. Like Demas, they had developed a love for earthly things. In other words, the fall wasn't instant. It happened by a matter of degrees. As I've heard it said before, when a man falls into sin, he doesn't fall very far. Their heart was there a long time ago, and their actions just finally followed suit. And ultimately, this is why I would say you have to go back and consider the teaching of these men, probably most particularly near the end right before they fell. Because the problem likely was not that they were teaching outright error. It's that they were probably neglecting to teach certain key spiritual truths. Basically, they didn't know how to worship anymore. And how are you going to teach other people to worship if you're not worshiping yourself? How are you going to display the glory of God to others if you can't see it for yourself anymore? This is the point of Spurgeon's concerns over the theater. You know, Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Well, spiritually bored pastors 
produce spiritually bored churches. And spiritually bored churches lack the concern for truth to prevent downgrade. So again, look for this mark. Those who worship by the Spirit will be possessed by the Word. To use an old Spurgeonism, he should, ble he should bleed biblene. That's what Spurgeon said with respect to John Bunyan. He said, prick him anywhere. His blood is biblene. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Now, John Bunyan is a pretty high standard to aspire to. So I think that gives you a pretty solid description of the type of man who will himself avoid gospel downgrade. He's going to bleed biblene. So watch your leaders and see if this is characteristic of their lives. And again, if it's not, encourage them. Encourage them lovingly and patiently, but nevertheless, encourage them to aspire to it. For in so doing, you will bless the entire church. And on that note, I'm going to conclude our discussion of this first proof of authentic spiritual authority, and that's spirit-fueled worship. Next week, we'll continue with the second proof in this passage, and that's Christ-centered delight, the authentic spiritual authority glories in Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to come back and continue with us next week as we consider the implications of this concept together. In the meantime, let's close with a word of prayer.